So going to go ahead and kind of hop into our comments section inbox, as it were, and come back to a couple of these questions that have come up over the next few days. I'll try and address some of these. Today, I'm going to go ahead and uh, address one from Seamus. I'd love to hear your views on the many contradictions between Paul's teachings and that of Jesus on the law, food sacrifice to idols, and the letter to the church of Ephesus about those who claim that they are apostles but aren't or are false apostles. Is there not some disturbing contradictions here? Um, okay, well, I appreciate, on the one hand, you being very brief in terms of uh, your question, but on the other hand... Um, some of the, uh, some of the questions are a little bit vague. So let me go ahead and, uh, try and address specifically what I think you're asking here in regard to contradictions. Uh, in the first place, I guess I wouldn't say, uh, and this is not an evasive thing. I legitimately would not say that there are contradictions between what Jesus taught and what Paul taught. Uh, but rather what we see here in, uh, is a continuity between the time and ministry of Christ. Uh, ultimately then carried on by the Apostle Paul after his own calling or after the resurrection is maybe a uh, another way to think about this. Uh, for example, in Galatians 1, we find out that Paul actually did not learn his gospel from other people, but rather Jesus taught him this himself. So we wouldn't expect there to be contradictions so much if we understand this kind of handoff, uh, if you will, but rather we would ra- uh, seek to understand it as more of a continuity. Uh, and what I mean by that is this, is that, uh, for example, if we start with the law. Um, the law was a covenant that Israel entered into with God, with Yahweh, Jehovah. And so this is a relationship that God invited a specific people, starting with Abraham, and then ultimately reaffirmed uh, through Isaac and Jacob and then through the, the 12 tribes, uh, this covenant relationship that God invited them to enter into. As a matter of fact, when the law was given on Mount Sinai in um, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, or yeah, Deuteronomy 4, I think there is this uh, mention of how there is this invitation to uh, to enter into this covenantal relationship with God. And the people very gladly embrace this and say, yes, we will do this and this kind of thing. Um, it, and of course there is, uh, this ongoing, uh, relationship between God and the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. By all of that to say this, the law is a relationship, covenantal relationship specifically between God and Israel. Uh, the Gentiles from a covenantal standpoint were never under the law in that same regard as Israel was. Now, of course, in Romans chapter two, we see that even though the Gentiles did not receive the law, you remember how chapter two um, 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 and chapter three really speaks of this benefit of Israel as being the recipients of the oracles of God. Well, the Gentiles were never that, really. Um, but nonetheless, Romans two tells us that the law was written on their hearts, and so therefore it is that and their conscience, really, essentially, that kind of leads them to know whether they're doing something right or wrong. It is something that God has written on the heart of humans. Um, but the law specifically codified in the 613 commandments that God gave Moses, along with the blueprints for the, ta- the mobile tabernacle and such on Mount Sinai, this was something specific between Israel and that. Now, I say all that just to kind of explain what that relationship ultimately is. Now, when we get to the New Testament, when we um, see the coming of Christ, who in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, for example, said, don't think that I came to destroy the law but rather to fulfill it. 
And then he goes on to describe how the righteousness of his hearers needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. And of course, this would have blown their minds because the Pharisees were outwardly speaking considered to be among the most righteous ever. So Jesus is not talking about um, their righteousness exceeding the Pharisees in terms of quantity or volume or something like this. Uh, or uh, and such, but rather uh, their righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees in kind. In other words, it is a different type of righteousness that ultimately exceeds. It's not a righteousness based on the flesh or based on effort and that kind of thing, but rather the righteousness that is given to us in Christ. This is a passage we've quoted often, Second Corinthians five twenty one, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not something that we earn, not something we, um, you know, ascend to in our own efforts, but rather something is given to us. This righteousness is a gift that is given to us because of the merits of Christ. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 2.20 that if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ uh, died for nothing. And he said, I won't frustrate the grace of God. I won't uh, set aside the grace of God. Uh, but rather recognize that righteousness does not come through the law, but rather only through the merits of Christ. And so when it comes to the law, Christ is born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law of Galatians chapter, uh, chapter four. As a matter of fact, I'll read it here. Galatians chapter four. If you want to have your uh, own Bible open, you can turn to Galatians four verses four and five in particular. As always, you should read the entire epistle to the Galatians because it speaks to this entire topic. But chapter uh, 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And he goes on and speaks more to that subject. Um, uh, But the idea here is that Christ came under the law. In other words, he was born of a woman, born in flesh like you and I. Although the incarnation is obviously... Uh, unique in that God himself, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, took on a body of flesh and became one of us, uh, that he might ultimately take our sin upon himself. He who is sinless and perfect ultimately died for those who were sinners and in need of that salvation that only came through him. So the law is something that ultimately reaches its fulfillment in Christ. As a matter of fact, this is the, uh, this is the point of the very first church council in history uh, in Acts chapter 15, uh, there was a question that arose because uh, both Peter and Paul both had experiences with uh, with the Gentiles now receiving the Holy Spirit, becoming legitimate born-again New Testament believers, and a council was held with James presiding over it, uh, the Lord's brother, and there is this uh, discussion about the Gentiles and their entrance into uh, a a right relationship with God, a a covenant relationship with God. And this is confusing and, 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 uh, and a hurdle to overcome from a Jewish mindset. To this point, the church was basically almost entirely comprised of Jews, uh, some proselytes, uh, Gentiles who became uh, followers of the God of Israel, but the church was essentially entirely Jewish to this point until uh, about Acts chapter 10. You could actually argue in Acts chapter 
uh, a when Philip uh, speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch and this kind of thing. But the 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 or even during Jesus' own ministry, where uh, these Gentiles came and wanted to meet with Jesus, and Jesus spoke of sheep that were not part of this fold that he would have to go to. In that, there's always these hints of this idea, and even the suggestion that there are those who are not strictly speaking of Israel coming to put their trust in the Messiah of Israel. Well, here in Acts chapter 15, now this is being addressed because now the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon Gentiles, and uh, and this all without coming through the law of Moses. And so the heart of the issue being addressed in Acts chapter 15 is if Gentiles can be saved apart from the law, then what of the law? And the ultimate conclusion of that is that Gentiles do not need to come through the law of Moses in order to be saved. Now, not only do Gentiles not come through the law of Moses in order to be saved, but the entire point of Galatians, uh, much of the content in the book of Romans, uh, uh, and also this, this passage in Colossians, if you want to uh, turn to Colossians chapter 2 uh, with me here, um, let me find that passage here real quick. Uh, Colossians 2, here we go, verses uh, 13. Uh, starting in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's speaking primarily to Gentiles now, the Gentile church in Colossae, um, uh, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, this again speaks to something we mentioned a moment ago. The Gentiles were never under the law in the covenantal sense like Israel was. However, the law still was the standard by which they would be measured. And that law was written on their hearts. This is why, again, in Romans 2, Paul talks about how they are commendable, Gentiles are, when they do that which is according to the law, even though they don't have the law, because their consciences and that which is written on their hearts drive them to do so. And likewise, they are also judged by the law, even though they don't have the law, because their heart either condemns them or uh, or um, or sets them free from that sense of condemnation. The Jews had the additional benefit of actually knowing what God said. But the Gentiles still were responsible because God had put it into their hearts. Well, here in Colossae, the Gentile believers are being told that that handwriting of transgression still stood against them, but Jesus took it away and nailed it to the cross. Now, he'll go down in verse... Um, I'll point out in verse 17, as uh, as Paul has talked about not letting them feel like they need to be judged, keeping holy days and feast days and Sabbaths, none of these things were actually required of Gentiles to begin with. But Paul goes even further and explains why these things are certainly not required of them, and for that matter, not even required of Jews anymore. And verse 17 says this, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance or the reality is Christ. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but rather I came to fulfill it. And so this, um, this, and John, if I could just sort of, you know, add one more point to this. In John chapter 1, verse 17, he speaks of how the law came through Moses, but grace and truth ultimately come through Jesus Christ. And so this message of God's grace runs throughout the Bible. But the law was given, as we learn in Galatians, to ultimately help us to realize our inability to live up to the standard that God has set and therefore to turn our attention to Messiah when he comes. Galatians 3, the idea of the law being like a schoolmaster, a tutor, 
ultimately to point us to the one who would pay our debt in Christ. And so, um, so it's not a contradiction between Jesus' own ministry or the ministry that he ultimately, uh, manifestly walked on earth under, but rather instead it is a continuity helping us to recognize that there is, uh, this movement from this period of the law to the period of grace. As a matter of fact, if you are, familiar with the concept of dispensationalism, and there are various degrees of dispensationalism, but simply put, the idea of God working through different um, covenantal periods, different economies, as it might be called, and, and that kind of thing, um, recognizing, though, that there is a thread, uh, a scarlet thread of redemption that is uh, that is provided through the means of grace that Christ provides through his death. But this thread runs throughout Scripture, ultimately tying it all together. Uh, our understanding of how these things work uh, really does clear up this idea that there's contradiction. It's not that there's contradiction, but rather there's continuity moving from one season in human history to the next as God ultimately was leading toward the coming of Christ, the Messiah, who would satisfy the requirement of the law. Uh, so that's one. Secondly, um, the idea of food sacrifice to idols. Okay, now, um, this idea of food sacrifice to idols and whether or not, and, and again, there's, there's not much said here in regard to the question itself, so I'm going to just sort of speak to the subject, and hopefully I'll hit on what uh, Seamus is asking about. Um, the idea of food offered to idols. Um, in, in the times of, of like the New Testament, for example, Paul speaks of this, uh, this issue in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where he talks about the subject of, uh, food being offered to idols or people's approach to eating, uh, foods with a clear conscience or not. And the responsibility that, that, uh, that, be, that believers that grow to maturity and recognize kind of the place of this whole argument, uh, would take toward younger believers who are maybe still unsure of whether it's okay to eat these meats. What What is that all about? Here in our Western culture, chances are we don't really think about this too much in a food context, but the principle that underlies it can apply to some other contexts with which we might find ourselves engaging each day. But the basic idea is this, is that um, during these times uh, when, when the New Testament was being written, uh, there are, of course, pagan temples in, in cities and towns and all over the place, and believers uh, who often were castouts from society because they didn't bend the knee to Caesar. Uh, believers who came to Christ who were Jewish, uh, uh, nationally, ethnically, religiously, and came to put their trust in Christ as their Messiah were not only outcast from society, but were also outcast even from their own families because they were uh, seen to be uh, forsaking the religion of their fathers. And so that being said, they often had to rely on themselves. They oftentimes didn't have means because sometimes they weren't allowed to keep their jobs or they didn't have uh, some of the relationships that might help to provide uh, were no longer there. And so they would oftentimes with what means they had go to the market to buy meats. Well, the cheap, some of the cheapest meats that were available were those that were leftover, uh, leftovers from pagan sacrifices in the temples and such. And so there became this, this uh, crisis of conscience now, um, I know this was offered to an idol, so if I bring it into my home and and eat from it, am I participating in offerings to idols in this kind of thing? Uh, you can already begin to see where this principle might find way into some modern applications. Well, Paul deals with this on a couple of fronts. In one way he deals with it is is the idea of your conscience. If your conscience condemns you in this, then don't do it. 
And if you are a believer whose conscience no longer really condemns them on this issue, and of course he goes to speak to this, let me just come to that in a second. Um, uh, then he said, for the sake of the, the weaker believer or the one who is still struggling with this, weaker is not intended to be an insult, but rather it's just acknowledging that there is still some dealing with this in their own conscience. So for their sakes, don't partake either. But he also goes on and says, when you're at dinner, don't ask where it came from. Uh, because if you don't ask, then technically speaking, you know, you're not, you know, maybe it didn't come from an idol or something. You don't have to worry about it because we know that idols are nothing in the world. And so therefore, uh, meats that are sacrificed to them don't, you know, they're just meats. Um, uh, everything is okay to be taken if it's received with thanksgiving and this kind of thing. So, uh, a mature believer has sort of moved past sort of the, um, the, the conflict of, of, of conscience in this. But there is still a responsibility on our part to try and, and not destroy the faith of those who are still wrestling with it. And so there's, there's a lot there in that regard. But of course, the other side of that is that for a mature believer, there is no need to worry about this. And so, uh, meat sacrifice to idols is no big thing because there's no actual God behind those idols. There may be demonic activity. I'm not discounting the fact that these idols, uh, you know, are maybe, uh, and not maybe, but oftentimes very clearly do, um, uh, symbolize demons and that kind of thing, false religions at the very least. Um, but a mature believer recognizes that this, this, this is just meat. God created this meat. And even though it was used by somebody for something else, it can be received if it's done so with thanksgiving and, and, and praising the Lord for it. And so, um, so when it comes, and even Jesus himself, uh, uh, made mention of the fact in, um, Matthew 15, 11, that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. In other words, what he says and that kind of thing. The foods that we partake in have nothing really to do. As a matter of fact, even in, in, um, in Acts chapter, uh, 10, when Peter ultimately goes to Cornelius's house, it is because the Lord gave him a vision that, that really rocked his world. Uh, Peter is a kosher Jew. And so when he sees this sheet lowering down in his dream and this vision that he has, uh, and there are all these unclean animals and he hears a voice and says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. He says, not so, you know, like I won't, I won't do that because it's not right for me as a Jew. And three times, uh, he has this, this vision and, and he's told not to call that which God has made clean to call it unclean. In other words, there is a changing again of seasons from one particular perspective now to another. And of course, the greater picture here is that the gospel is about to be open to the Gentiles who are considered unclean by Jews uh, up until the, the point now where, where um, the church exists. And so again, this idea of, of food sacrifice to idols, I'm not sure if I hit exactly, Seamus, what you're asking about there, but I don't think there's a clear question there as much as a reference to this concept. So hopefully I did hit on it there. And then lastly, uh, the letter that I presume you're referring to the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus uh, by the hand of John, really, but he dictated to the church of Ephesus, uh, where in chapter two, verse um, uh, two, uh, there is mention of those of the, this is speaking to the church in Ephesus, but there's mention of those who uh, claim to be apostles, but are not. Now, I don't really know what the question or contradiction that is seen here is. And so let me just say that in reference to Ephesus and this concept about the those claiming to be apostles who are not, um, Ephesus, which, by the way, we're teaching uh, on Paul's letter to the Ephesians on Sunday mornings, if you want to join us for that on our live stream. 
But um, And so we will be talking about some of these things in later chapters in that. But Ephesus was the beneficiary of some tremendous uh, um, benefits and, and, and teachers and this kind of thing. Paul plants the church over a three-year period of time, uh, sweats uh, and, and works hard in building and establishing this church in the midst of a very, very pagan culture. Uh, we read about episodes uh, in the book of Acts that he had to deal with. We read about um, you know, some of these, uh, concepts in, in the letter and that, but, uh, for three years. And then Timothy ultimately is pastor of the churches there in this body of believers in Ephesus. And tradition holds that John the apostle himself with Mary, the mother of the Lord, ultimately, uh, uh, uh lived there at one point later, uh, in their lives. And so, uh, Mary, of course, being put into John's care by the Lord at the cross. And so, um, so Ephesus, you could say had some pretty big hitters, Not only that, but there were a lot of established leaders that were established there under both Paul and likely Timothy as well. Uh, As this is one of Paul's prison epistles, um, uh, Timothy would have already likely been there, spent some time there and been establishing leaders as we read about in Paul's letters to Timothy. And so this church is well-founded and established and, and pastored by a number of different people. Nonetheless, they lose their first love by the time Jesus writes his letter. And so there are... Uh, as by this point, there are, as Paul said there would be in Acts chapter 20, when he calls these Ephesian elders to himself uh, while he's in um, uh, Miletus. And uh, sorry, just escaped me at the moment there. I think Miletus. But he calls them to himself and he ultimately pours into them one final time because they're not going to see his face again. And so he tells them that after his departure, ravenous wolves uh, will rise up from among the flock people from within the professing body there in Ephesus, those claiming to be believers, but are in fact wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, and so he warns against them. So there are those uh, who have even risen up that that are like uh, apostles, even though they claim to be this, but they're not. Um, and Jesus makes reference to apparently this has become something that has caught uh, that is worthy of, of his uh, writing a letter specifically about this uh, among the seven letters to the seven churches there in chapters two and three of Revelation. So, um, of course, the idea of there being um, uh, the church being built upon a foundation of apostles and prophets, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter four, uh, there are those that help to establish Paul being one of them, that church. But there are always, where there is a true work of God, there is always the attempt by the enemy to bring a counterfeit work of God as well. And Ephesus was not unique to this, by the way, in uh, in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. Second uh, Corinthians, Paul is dealing with the fact that some false teachers have tried to woo away those that he has invested himself in uh, over a year and a half when he was in Corinth. Um, and he's having to defend his apostleship to them. Uh, and he does so by demonstrating his tireless love for them, his investment in them, his pouring into them, his willingness to speak truth to them, even though uh, they want their ears tickled by these false teachers and that kind of thing. So, um, so again, I don't know specifically what the question is in regard to false apostles and that, but I, in a general sense, hopefully I addressed it a little bit. But uh, I thought these subjects that Seamus brought up were worth addressing, uh, certainly the question of contradictions. But even these uh, these other topics here, too, that are mentioned, I thought were worth spending a minute on. So my hope is that there's some profit in that. So I, I hope that was a worthwhile um, 
pursuit there. So thanks for joining on this. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and in the days ahead, try and uh, take on some other questions that have come up over the last few weeks. I'm, I'm just now kind of getting to some of the comments and emails that have come in. It's been a little bit of a uh, a busy time over the last couple of weeks, so forgive me that I haven't gotten on this a little sooner. Uh, I will say, in relation to this last point we talked about, I'm actually planning tomorrow uh, to post uh, for for our next uh, uh, post uh, a study springing from Acts chapter 20 on this very subject of false teachers and that, and the need to beware of false teachers. So we'll we'll get into that in the next uh, either the next post or two, Lord willing. And the creek don't rise, as they say. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining in. As always, it's a blessing to be able to come and open the word together and to discuss some of these things together, all in the hope that we would be growing consistently in our faith and our relationship with Christ so that uh, as we find ourselves um, um, growing as students of the word, growing in our relationship with Christ, we would be able to stand in these evil days, ultimately, as trophies of his grace, uh, as mouthpieces of his message, as ambassadors for Christ, as Paul would put it, uh, in these days. Because you and I, in fact, are here for such a time as this. And so uh, discipling and growing in our faith and learning is is paramount and essential to our, our health, spiritually speaking, in our relationship with God. So thanks again for joining. Father, we do thank you for giving us your word. And we thank you for giving us um, the capacity to understand these ideas. And we just pray that as we come to your word with um, genuine openness and a desire to know that, Father, you by your Holy Spirit and through a reading of the text and a consideration of what's there, we would come to a deeper knowledge and understanding of these things, that we might grow healthier and healthier and more and more Christ-like by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you'd be glorified and exalted through these things. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for the future and hope you've called us to. And we just pray uh, with great anticipation that we would see Jesus soon. So thank you, Lord. We love you and praise you for all of this and ask you to continue to lead us by the hand and by the heart and by the mind uh, into a deeper uh, and, and, uh, and, and more pervasive in our lives relationship with you. Thank you so much, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.